Hello, and welcome to the Vulnerability Junkies podcast. I'm Kevin. And I'm Jamie. On this podcast, we talk about the scary, vulnerable parts of our personal and professional growth, our identities as second-generation Asian Canadians, and talking about our feelings. Do you know what you want in life? How do you balance having sources of purpose, practicality, and passion? On today's episode, we ask special guest Norman Tran about his journey starting a company that teaches relational intelligence and how he navigates all the feelings associated with forging your own path. Let's get into it. Today, we have a very special guest, Norman Tran. We owe the entire existence of this pod to him because he is one of the co-founders of Relating Between the Lines, which was the communication course that I took and then absolutely loved, talked to Kevin about like on a weekly basis while I was taking it, eventually convinced him to take it. And he loved it so much that he wanted to have this podcast as a place to practice the skills we learned there. So really excited to, to have you here and to just like hang out and chat with you since there's a lot of similar life, uh, life endeavors that I think we can connect on. So welcome, Norman. Thank you, Jamie. Thank you, Kevin. It is a joy to be here, and I can't wait to just chat with you all. Welcome. So the way that we open with a temperature check, also just directly stolen from Relating Between the Lines. So let's uh, let's just start there. Norman, how are you feeling today? I was feeling a bit stressed today because I was trying to create a essay, and so the entire day I've been mulling over the process but also have been waiting all day for this podcast which i'm excited nice kevin where are you coming in at today physically and emotionally i'm like a six i'm like kind of getting sick so feeling kind of well um but yeah emotionally also just like i spent a decent amount of today working having to catch up on work so that's been mm. a, a pressure um on me as well for context, it's a Sunday, yes. which is when we usually record, so that extra sucks. Yes. Yeah. What about you? I think physically I'm at like a I'm at like a five and a half. I have this, this beginning tinge of a headache, which mm. just sucks. And it's one of those ones, I feel like it's just going to stay level like this for hours. Uh, so I'm probably going to be slightly irritable, but I think it will be effectively healed by the, the warmth of two of my favorite people. So... <laughs> That'll act as an effective solve. And then emotionally, beside the irritation, I'm feeling pretty calm and like I have time. I'm not feeling rushed, but it feels very fragile. Like I've been bouncing back and forth the last couple of days between really, really enjoying the company of people and feeling very calm in their presence. And then having time on my own, my brain goes like, what are we doing? So um, I think at the moment I'm on the, I'm on the calm side, which I think will be quite happy and stable for the call or for the, the recording. So looking forward for this as a place of refuge. Look at you two modeling temperature checks, sharing not just the emotional, but also the physical. Wow. Yeah. Come a long way. It's interesting to note that like, because I guess like Norman has seen both of us before what I refer to as the awakening, <laughs> you know? So it's just, it's interesting that like, um, imagining that for you, like, seeing the arc is kind of is kind of cool watching people go from you know not being able to see and then whoa being able to label emotions 
and be aware of their existence is pretty cool. It's the the payoff <laughs> for the work. It's watching people grow. It's one of the most beautiful things to see. Oh, I love that. Both the, like the experience of that as a teacher, but also watching other teachers be so gratified by that experience. It's just, it's one of those positive feedback loops that just seems like thoroughly good. Mm. Just like every part of that cycle, I'm just like, yeah, more of that. I do it just for the money. It's transactional. <laughs> Everything makes sense now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So one of the things that I always really struggled with in every tale was in asking questions, providing the the underlying motive. But this one's actually gonna be really easy for me. So Norma, I'd love to hear about your journey towards building relating between the lines and in particular dealing with navigating the huge ocean of uncertainty between this thing doesn't exist to now this thing exists. Mm. Because at the moment, I'm very much in a wayfinding stage and figuring out what to do with my career. And I've been running different kinds of experiments to figure out what's going to work for me. And I found talking to other people that have been through this phase and honestly, them normalizing that the chaos that I feel in my head is normal has been really helpful. So I'd love to hear more about like the journey that led you there and then especially the, the emotional quality of that journey mm. at, each, at each step along the way. Yeah, the journey that led me to building Relating Between the Lines is a very long journey that I think essentially started as early as 2014. So in 2014, right after college, I studied business and comp sci. I was basically smitten by the entrepreneurial dream of like starting your own company. And so I moved to San Francisco and joined a school essentially called Tradecraft to train to become a product designer. And it just so happened that as part of personal development, we got to experience Stanford's touchy-feely, which is like this famous class that's taught at the School of Business for the MBAs where students learn the importance of emotions in becoming leaders and how important relationships are. So we got a two-week abridged version of this class taught by some Stanford facilitators. And that made me realize, I don't even remember what age I was at when it was like 2014, but I don't know, 22 or 23. I was like a baby. And I, at that time, discovered that like I don't know anything about my emotions. I'm so emotionally incompetent. I can't even read my own emotions. I can't read what's going on in the other person's face sitting across from me. Oh my God, I'm terrible at <laughs> this stuff. And so thus became this like side quest at the very beginning of my career of like, I want to learn this stuff. I want to get good at this stuff because I suck at it. And so, yes, I became a designer, but that gnawing question of like, how do I get better at knowing more about my emotions and connecting with people? So a big pivotal moment happened in 2015, right after I started my career. I developed an autoimmune disorder called Graves' disease, also known as hyperthyroidism. So imagine your metabolism at 500%. Sounds 
great in theory if you're trying to lose weight, but imagine losing 15 pounds in like two weeks. So I run through my energy reserves so quickly that like I was always weak. I couldn't even open a water bottle. So I was like, oh, I'm going to die, right? First thing you go to WebMD and you look at your symptoms and it was like, you have (laughs) HIV, you're going to die. And I freaked out and that started my quarter life crisis. And so it was a really weird intersection of, of I just started my career. Touchy feely is this class that opened my eyes to so much that I didn't know. And then I, all of a sudden I had my first experience or like war with mortality. So the intersection of these experiences triggered a really big existential type of depression for me that made me ask a lot of questions like, what am I here for? Like, what do I really care about? What do I want to do with my life? Because yes, yeah, I was making six figures. But I came home and watched Netflix and was bored out of my mind. And I was like, this is it. <laughs> like, this was what I was striving for. And so because of that culmination of experiences in 2015, I made the radical decision to actually pivot away from tech. I, in reading a book called The Priority List, which is about a high school teacher who develops brain cancer and tours the United States seeing old students to see the impact he had on them and also to hear about what's important in their lives. And in this book, I was like, I want that. I don't want to build apps that make people money. I want to do what this teacher's doing. I want to have an impact on people. I want to design experiences that help people learn and grow. And so instead of thinking of myself as a designer of screens and interfaces and pretty things, I discovered a field called learning design. And so 2016 was when I made the pivot. My parents were like, what the hell is wrong with you? You're giving up six figures for what? Um, And 2016 was when I was basically invited to apply to be a facilitator for Touchy Feely because I was that student that took so many of the classes that the facilitators all knew me and they're like, we see you here all the time. You should just join us. And so that's really how it happened. In 2016, I became a facilitator for Touchy Feely. It changed my life because I got to now take that class that changed my life that opened so much for me and be able to share that with much older students so here was this 24 year old person teaching 30 year olds about emotions and so it was it was weird to be one of the youngest queer and asian facilitators ever um, at stanford facilitating touchy-feely but no one could tell that i was young Um, and so After several years of that, among other experiences I had dabbling in like consulting and gigs, I realized like this is the path I want to keep going after. And so what started as a, oh my God, I love this. I want to learn it and replicate it turned into how else can this look in the world? How could I add my own contribution? How could I refine this? And so between 2017 and 2018, I joined a startup called Mission U that at the time was trying to like reinvent college. And I pitched them a role to 
effectively port touchy-feely and design your life there but like in my own style did that it was a really cool experience burnt me the hell out startup life is very intense i felt like that was my first sense of confidence that like i could do this for a living i could create an entire program and hire other people to facilitate this program with me and so finally how rbtl really started was like i knew that the flavor of the way stanford was teaching touchy-feely was like a bit clinical it needed more like fun and now in hindsight like i'm I'm about like queer eyeing the whole experience. I'm about like injecting some <laughs> some color and queerness into it. And, like it's not publicized on the on the website, but like that's really the energy. And so there's a desire to make it fun. I prototyped a card game, hoping to kind of like find a way to Trojan horse the the stuff I learned in Touchy Feely um, into a more fun format. And eventually, that card game turned into the course with the help of my co-founder, Stephanie Tran. Um, we're not related, people ask. We're more like work wives for each other. Mm-hmm. Um, but she's the one who really said like, you have something here, let me help make it come to life. Let me help like operationalize this. Let's like build a company around this. And so that's why it's like a long multi-year journey of almost like different evolving Touch, uh, touchstones, I guess, uh, or stepping stones that each one increased my confidence and like hunger for something to exist until eventually I just needed it to happen. I needed to build something because every five of my being wanted it to exist. Well, the, the hunger piece is really interesting. The, this like visceral desire for this thing to exist looking at the landscape of offerings and being like, why doesn't this exist? Yeah. I must make it so. So uh, the narrative and seeing the stepping stones along the way really helps me understand more about how it came into being. But I'm finding myself like really drawn into what happened between those steps. Mm. Like when, um, how did you manage the self-doubt that came up at each phase, especially this question of like, I think the questions I have the hardest time managing are one or like there's like kind of three different things. One of them is like, is this even possible? Mm. Another one is, can I personally do this? And then I guess the last one is like, is it worth it? Mm. So that that kind of it's like somewhat critical inner dialogue and it's somewhat protective inner dialogue. Did you have similar kinds of things come up in between the steps of this process? And like if you did, how did you manage those? Oh yeah. I am only able to tell you an arc that looks linear because it has been made linear through storytelling. As it was happening, like I had no idea what the next step was at all. Um, It was constantly facing the unknown. I think one thing that addressed the self-doubt piece, not that it ever went away from like one experience, but like one significant factor was that as someone with ADHD and late diagnosed ADHD, like like I didn't know until like 2019, but now in hindsight, it's very clear. As someone with ADHD, I have what's called a interest-based nervous system, meaning I am driven towards things I am interested in and can work emphatically towards them with like limitless energy. However, things that I'm not interested in are really, really, really hard 
and it's almost like swimming upstream. And so when I looked at my process of becoming a designer, there are aspects of it that I very much enjoyed and was good at, but there's a lot of it that was starting to become like tedious and annoying and I didn't really care to get good at it. So 2014, 2015 was the era where people were just starting to think a lot about like interactions and like animations and how do we instill animated moments of delight into UX design. And in 2014, when I was a new designer, I was like, that's so cool. And then after like a year, I was like, I don't care anymore. <laughs> like, this is, especially after, you know, my big existential crisis, like this is the most unimportant thing in my life. I don't give a shit about animating things. There is a much larger calling. And what really answered that for me was, interestingly enough, after my horrendous fall in my face kind of experience with touchy-feely the first time, the, the subsequent times I took it, I got good at it really fast, like terrifyingly fast. I think the that experience of like, one, I'm drawn to this and my interests based nervous system is like check mark. And then two, like there's this weird sense of flow and ease and almost like unfairness. It's like, who are you at 24 to, to like be a facilitator at the top school in the world, teaching some of the most incredibly high potential people in the world, teaching these people about emotions and like human dynamics, like what? Like that helped me see that this is a very rare circumstance that means something. And so I think without touchy-feely, I don't think I would have had the inner confidence to ever like try pivoting. But because of this, it was like, you got something special, honey. Like you better use it. You better do something with this. Like this is like the speed at which you became a designer versus the speed at which you became a facilitator. Like it's a completely different path. Like if we look at, if we try to draw the um, progression, like one line is linear, the one, the other one's exponential. And so there's something about the access to mastery early on and, and so quickly and so intrinsically enjoyable for me that I was just like, oh, this is the thing. This is the thing that you've been looking for, the thing that you were meant to do. That did not free me from, you know, doubt. Like there, there was so much doubt throughout the entire time that I was becoming a facilitator. I was always asking like, am I smart enough? Like can I even teach these people? I had to always like seek validation from my mentor facilitators. There is always like comparison to other incredible facilitators and wondering like, how do I see the world like them? Like, oh my God, like it's almost like they have an X-ray into like other people's like psyche. How do they do that? But it's also that curiosity that helped me keep getting better. Knowing that I kept wanting to ask harder questions, more technical questions, more philosophical questions was also a good um, sign, I guess, that like I am growing, I'm continuing to, I'm continuing to like advance my craft. Um, and so despite the doubts, there were always mentors that I had sought after who basically validated that like, no, you're good. Like you have some skills, like you can work on these things, but like you have something special, keep going. So I think having a support system that's multiple steps ahead of you, having them see 
and validate that you have something special is extremely precious and rare. And so if you have mentors in this process, you trying to figure out what you're going to be doing next. And they're like, you have something and they're not just bullying you, you trust them. Then those I think are good signs that the bet is at least not 0%, right? (laughs) It's non-zero. And the more mentors you have, the more of these kind of like special experiences you've or achievements, whatever you want to call them, the more that likelihood increases and the more I would bet on that. So it sounds like it was there was two separate things that were really important in helping you stay on the path. One of them was recognizing this incessant curiosity that was able to really dramatically accelerate your learning in a way that when you compare it to experiences in design, you're like, yeah, like I can learn this stuff, but Eh, like, you know, it's like a thing I can do, but it's not like a thing that I feel like I, like a burning desire to do, or it sounds like for the facilitation stuff. Even though there was areas where you could clearly see opportunities for growth, the immediate reaction was not like, ugh, okay, I'll learn this. It was like, okay, I want to do it. Like, I want to learn now. Like, like, I have so many questions. Like, please, please share, like, all of the things you know with these things. Because I really, like, I have this burning, deep interest Uh yeah, that's that's like really helpful for me to hear because I feel that for some things but not others mm-hmm. and it is like easy to get lost. And the other thing that it sounds like was really important to you is having mentors that were further down the path. They were able to recognize these strengths in you, help you draw the arc that, that those were indicative of something that of your capabilities that you might not be able to see in yourself yet because you can't project into the future, but they can project into their past and they can say that like, I can see where you are based on my own path. And like the trajectory looks great. Yeah. Yeah. Essentially, um, it's having people confirm that you do not overestimate yourself. Mm. Right. It's very easy to, especially when you're like emphatic about something, eventually start deluding yourself into thinking that like you are incredible. And it's like, I had that face. I had people puncture that and help me see the blind spots that I had, which helped me get better. But it was the fact that they're like, yeah, you have something special. Just just keep going. I think that was like a reason for me to keep exploring. Well, I have more questions, but I'm wondering, Kevin, what's coming up for you in listening to this? I'm curious to learn more about whether or not the flavor of the challenges changed as you progressed from getting really good at this, the actual skill and the craft of human relational dynamics and the point at which you took the plunge on creating or trying to create a business around it. I think it's both a continuation of that same type of process of like, are the mentors validating what's going on? Are you actually performing well? There's that. And then there's also like, and there's a completely different branch of skills that you need for this to be financially viable and so that was a completely different ball game and so yes i figured out that i'm good at facilitating and coaching but the much harder question was like how how do i do this as a living how do i make money off of this and so that process which was much more about looking at people that were doing this and were making money and trying to reverse engineer like how do i get there how do i do what they're doing and that's why the most 
painful, sobering um, reality, which is it's a heavily relationship-oriented field, meaning a lot of people who do this have clients that they know. If you don't know people, you have no business. <laughs> so that's one thing. Another thing is they're almost all older white people. Almost everyone in the space is like 40, 50, 60 years old. I don't look like them. I don't have their life experience. And so I had to constantly figure out like, what's my differentiator if I'm not there yet? If they all have the business right now and they're all making enough money to sustain themselves, the heck do I fast forward 10, 20 years? And so there's this process where I basically was trying to, what's the word? You know the joke where it's like, your LinkedIn profile is exaggerated compared to your actual duties. I had to figure out how to play that game right on the gray area line of like, how do I inflate myself a little bit to, to seem older and wiser than I really am? To get opportunities, to get in front of people, to build up my portfolio and testimonials. And so there was a lot of hustling that happened in my mid-20s and late-20s that involved pitching myself to all types of people to get opportunities and then basically like elevating them with language and then using them to get other opportunities. And so this is, there's this like insane game of inflation. I don't really like that game anymore. And so it's, it's a lot harder now for me to, to do that. But at that time, I had the obsession of like, I'm going to make this work. I have to make this work. Um, and so, yeah, figuring out how to make it financially viable was a completely much more difficult and continues to be a challenging uh, question. Yeah, you were really fighting like two different games at the same time of trying to reassure yourself that your coaching skills really are like hot. And then also trying to convince yourself like, okay. I can also turn this into a business, which is a totally separate set of skills. And it sounds like you had to kind of embody a persona that that was a little inflated, that maybe felt a little bit in incongruent. That was not really your vibe. Um, that sounds exhausting. It's not necessarily the path that you have to take either, right? It just happened to be the path that I knew I could take because I knew that other people did that and I knew how to spin a good tail out of everything yeah. that I did. And I'm glad that era is over because um, it was very exhausting. But I actually wouldn't have done it differently because mm -hmm. it it got me what I needed. It, it got me a cracked out resume that every Asian parent would like die for. You know, it's like, he has three <laughs> Ivy Leagues on his resume. You know, whatever. <laughs> like, now I laugh at it, but it's like, I had to do that because I thought for Norman to compete against these other people with 10, 20 more years experience, he needs to, to fast forward that progression. And that's basically what I did. If I had to do it differently, though, I think there is a different path, which is to actually focus on what these people don't have, mm. which is to lean more into like my chaotic queer creative energy and to lean into the diversity that like that there is a world that's looking for me not them <laughs> you know like i didn't know that like it took me being in the business to know that there are people looking for me and are looking for something else and are looking for fresh queer and unique approaches to this work 
but that kind of insight is even hard is, is the probably the hardest to earn which is that there's a demand for your work there's a demand for your specific flavor of offerings and that i think you only earn by being in the business and doing it yeah yeah it sounds like the the approach of looking at the positioning of these like 40 50 year old men and looking at their the resumes and like, oh god like how do i fast forward to that <laughs> it was yeah. brutal it worked but you did have another path but the other path you're describing of like just more fully embodying putting more of yourself into the actual thing mm-hmm. that makes a lot of sense to me but i can also see why that would have been really scary because the first path it's it's like it sounds like oh man this game is really really hard to play whereas the second game is like this game is maybe easier to play but i'm not sure this game works at all like even if though it would have felt more aligned i think it would have been much scarier to go down that path because at least you know the first path works that like you've seen people build businesses our structure like that where the second path sounds like trying to manifest in it like a totally new kind of thing and then just trusting that people will will gather around it uh, yeah did, like does that yeah it's like here? yeah i like the distinction you made where it's kind of like in the first game that i was playing which is playing catch up or what i thought i was doing right it's like okay there's all these people in the in the space these people are climbing like V15 walls. I need to figure out how to climb V15 walls in like five minutes. <laughs> yeah. That's a that's a specific type of game. It, it, it can be engineered. It's technical, but like it can happen. This other game is like invent a new sport <laughs> and be the face of it. It's like extremely high risk. There's no playbook. But like, if you invent a sport and you're the face of it, you're the face of it because you invented it. It's like, it's like it's almost like auto monopoly. And so it, I think the second game is infinitely harder because it's completely dependent on your level of self awareness. Yeah. Because like, I am only more confident now marketing my niche because I know myself. Several years ago, I didn't even know I was neurodivergent. I didn't even know that could be fully embraced as a way to differentiate myself. I didn't know diversity was something I could count on as a differentiator. And so these three things I didn't know about myself that could be marketable. And so I went in with with, with no ammo. And so I thought the only game I could play was the first game. Now I'm like, I'm armed with all these things and like, I'm, I don't have to play that game. I can play my own game and I'm learning to play the second game now, but it's hard choosing which game that you have to play or to the extent that you have to play is always, I think, part of the calculation. The essence is that like, instead of trying to be another Brene Brown, another Tiago Forte, another Esther Perel, I have to be me. And so the flavor is more like, I want to infuse Lil Nas X energy with Brene Brown because that doesn't exist. That is a unfathomable concept, and I don't even know what it looks like. So I'm still figuring like with the experiments, you know, like oh, how could it look like if I did these weird TikToks and weird YouTube videos that funny and and like insightful at the same time? I'm still playing with that. I'm shedding the image that has now imprisoned me from playing the first game whoa i love i love the image of of the finding the intersection of Brene brown and little nasa x like yeah they, 
they're, both of their energies are incredible, but they're so different. And that's why it's like exciting for me to think about because like I I didn't know I had permission to do that until I saw Lil Nas doing his thing. I'm like, oh, like people love him for him, right? <laughs> people don't love him because he's anywhere near Brene Brown, and then people love Brene Brown because she's Brene Brown. But I'm like, what happens when you intersect these completely unrelated energies together? Because that that's me. I'm I'm these two energies. I have no idea how to show them publicly <laughs> together, but I know that's what I need to do. That's like my my path. That's that like obsession thing again. It's like I need to figure out how to show up in that collided energy. I found it very interesting <laughs> that you framed it with respect to self-awareness. I agree with everything that you said. It like checks out with my own personal experience as well. I read a lot about how like playing like this monopoly thing that you were talking about definitely resonates. Like there's a lot of literature out there about just, you know, if you want to like really stick out, you can try and become the best at the game that everyone else plays or you just make your own game. And then, you know, you're the best because that's it's it's your game. But I'm I've never thought about it in terms of the way that you discover what your own game is is it's a a function of how well you know yourself and your strengths and what makes you unique. I'm curious to learn about what that process was like for you since it sounds like you have a, mm. at least a little bit more clarity on that now and i'm curious if there was anything that you did intentionally or do you think it just kind mm. of you just have to spend some spend time like mm. what was that journey like i actually took a class called rite of passage by david perel and in the class he introduced to me the concept of a personal monopoly where you create your own niche by intersecting as many seemingly unrelated and hyper-specific circles as possible. So he gave me the framework and then like a North Star of like, okay, I need to like find my intersections. And if you look at other people's intersections, what people are marketing, it's very quick to be able to like see where you are unique, right? If I look at a lot of the existing, let's say, players in the learning and development space the facilitation in the training space it feels quite homogenous it it feels rather they're all the same it's it's white and it's usually a, it feels a little spiritual and that's about it and so what i think what i was thinking about like okay let's let's see what what circles can i put in my like venn diagram it's like where where what where am i different it's like I now knowing that I'm neurodivergent, it's like have the ability to pick apart things at great levels of specificity and create like taxonomies of things, right? Like I'm, I'm good at making things clear. And clarity at that level is often not found in what I've seen. So I was like, oh, cool. That's like, I don't know what the word is, but like there's something there, maybe engineering oriented, right? And then there's like artistic. A lot of the stuff out there is just not really pretty. They're not designers, they're facilitators, but like I'm a designer. So like, okay, cool. I can add design here. And then like, okay, most of them are heterosexual. I'm gay. Great. Oh, I'm neurodivergent. Great. And then like, that's like the, the preliminary level. The deeper level is like getting even more specific, like stationary video games. I had no idea that these parts of me that played a huge role in my childhood could be things that I could command in my personal monopoly, right? 
But guess what? Who who else is doing stationary in their cohort-based courses? No one. All right, cool. We we ship this beautiful box full of amazing things to people and it lights up their entire experience. Great. Video games. Ooh, how do I make this fun and make it feel like I'm progressing through levels? They're not gamers. They're they're out there connecting with people. That's wonderful. But like I'm a gamer and so I'm going to infuse that into. This. So like when I finally mapped out this ginormous um, Venn diagram, it helped me see that like I had a lot to offer. I'm so weird. I'm so different compared to the folks that are already doing this space. I just need to figure out how to like tell my story. And so there begins, I think the, the next type of self-awareness work, which is writing your story and sharing with people and seeing how people react. Right. I've, I've shared so many different permutations of my story just to see like, how does it feel? Does it feel good in, in that version? What if I highlight these three intersections? What if I like omit that one? And so there's a like permutation process that happens. And then when you find that people are like lighting up with interest as you're talking about certain intersections, that's like a good sign that like that there's something here. People are like interested in seeing this in the world. So yeah, there was a framework and then you have to fill it out yourself to find out your intersections. And then you have to start telling your story using that framework and seeing how people respond and then adjusting it so that it matches both like how you really feel about yourself and how people are responding. After you connected all the dots, was it very empowering? There's a sense of groundedness now that I have that I didn't have before. There's this like deeper kind of confidence of like, oh, it's not if Norman will succeed, it's when Norman will succeed. Cause like, I'm like, I'm different enough I'm on the right journey of learning how to integrate these different parts of me and learning how to like be fully weird and like be fully unapologetically me in all these different like intersections. The more I move in this direction, the more positive validation I get from all types of people. And so I feel a lot more safe and have this greater sense of knowing that like I have something unique and wonderful to offer to the world. Um, and I didn't have that before. I didn't have that specific flavor of confidence before relating between lines. It was just like, I wanna make something. It was like a blind like excitement. It's just like, oh, I wanna make something. And now it's like, I know why it works down to the specifics, right? And, and that's a really good feeling because that's like earned, you did the work. Um, and so a lot of it, you can't, you can't get ahead of it. You can do your best and like know yourself and do all the reflection, all the exercises. But like when you actually tell the story, when you actually build things, like that's when you get the true data. Yeah. I really like this framing of identifying all these different facets of yourself and then viewing each of them as a part of your own unique contribution. As I've been exploring, I felt like I've been feeling like a increasing need to to like focus and some versions of that focus tends to crowd out all these other things that that like aren't really clear contributors to like the the solution paths that i'm looking at mm. um, but i'm having a really hard time feeling fully alive when doing that so like going down the path of purely exploring the things i know have been interesting to me in the past has been hard because it, it feels disconnected from like a path to future 
but trying to do just the path to the future things and exclusion of it feels the phrase is coming to mind for you like culturally bankrupt like it's just mm-hmm. it feels a little bit too too sterile and like hyper optimized but in in a way that makes it harder for it to feel fulfilling yeah uh, if you just if you just look at your skills and your outputs you're a mercenary you're replaceable you are one in 50 million no one cares anyone can hire anyone else but when you bring in the equation of what do i need for the work to be fulfilling to make me come alive that's when you by necessity have to integrate more parts of you and you can't force the integration of those parts if they don't make sense and or if you if they don't make sense anymore right not everyone still cares about video games from their past or whatever you know it's like i just happen to carry all my interests with me all the time and they're like always burning and needing to be expressed in me i think that's like a neurodivergent thing and so like i am with how many circles i'm playing with but most people don't have that many circles and so that that's why it's hard to figure out like what else am i trying to integrate like for you it's like is dance relevant is interest is, is interest in um manipulation of like and the technicality of that part still part of it is there something else is there is it cultural heritage is that part of something that's like deeply important for you and so you have to figure out like which of these circles actually makes sense you can't force them just because you have them right right you don't just choose only the thing at the center of the venn diagram you're like all right like i'm not trying to choose just one of the things on the edge doesn't need to be in the center but like lots of other combinatorial options here to play with mm-hmm. that's worth really thinking about the things at my disposal not only in terms of skills but also in terms of interests mm-hmm. to try to try to integrate so yeah like the like the super mercenary path which has been obviously not a good fit for me um would be to either join a startup or join as a co-founder for something that i'm confident i have the necessary skills to deliver um, and is aligned with my like moral values so like there's there's climate tech companies that i could join that would feel aligned in that way but i just noticed that it just like doesn't spark any of these other facets for me so i've been trying to think about how to select like the right part of this venn diagram and constrain it enough to be satisfying but not constrain it so much that like this thing literally doesn't exist and doesn't make any sense because i I agree that trying to choose the center of the diagram and literally have like 12 different things all intersecting as the requirements for anything I'll pursue is just a recipe for frustration. Um, but it's also ignoring like the path that I actually choose for my career. And there's also this element of how much are these things serving as distractions for me pursuing that versus how much are, do they actually energize me in allowing me to pursue them? So like dance has never been a thing that I was considering pursuing in any career capacity. Um, but it's like come in and out of my life at different times because it's such a source of energy, but it does take a lot of time. And it's just like, it's been hard figuring out for myself how much time to, to allow it to take in order to give me the energy to do other things. Um, or maybe like how to integrate it. Like they're, they're having some like weird intersections. Like I did actually learn a bunch about some facets of like climate change related technology because I discovered that someone in my group of dancer friends just happens to work in the industry so like you know this is a weird way which is oh yeah like my network can span past what other people's might from these weird angles that have nothing to do with the main thing but i do think that i need to find ways to integrate more parts of this um to find a path like i spent the last i spent three days out at a a writing retreat 
So a thing that has been difficult for me to figure out for myself is that I, I really like writing and I hate doing it alone. And that it's been really, really hard to get myself to, to write. But when I'm surrounded by other people writing and listening to them talk about their ideas in writing, my motivation goes way, way up. So I guess like thinking about these circles, like one of them is writing, but another one of them is like being in community. And that intersection of being community and writing works better than either of the things separately. Um, and it does serve as another strength in the fact that, you know, I think it's likely that in a thing I'm going to publish, I'm going to get, well, first of all, it's way better because of the feedback I got from the people. And second of all, they'll probably help me signal boost it so that it reaches a wider audience, reaches a better audience that is actually going to be impacted by, by what I'm writing. So um, it's helpful to, to hear from Norman that, that for, for you looking at these facets of your life that were being underexpressed and allowing them to find a pathway to expression has actually been really helpful to you because it's, it's like always difficult for me to figure out how to balance um, the pursuit of those things with finding a path that to like stability in some sense of the word stability. I think it's worth noting what you said earlier that like if you try to find only the center of so many different intersections, it's a recipe for disappointment. And so I actually want to emphasize that caveat even in my own story, which mm -hmm. is there is a limit to how many intersections you can make work for any one thing, right? right. So it it actually has been a burden at times for me to try to integrate so many aspects into my career. And so mm -hmm. a new approach I'm actually currently exploring is detaching some of those circles from my career and instead treating it more like a portfolio that like I can diversify my sources of meaning, I can diversify my sources of expression and diversify of income and they don't all have to be completely intertwined. And so even in thinking about your journey, it's what are the minimum viable intersections that make it <laughs> feel alivening enough that you can see yourself pursuing it daily, right? If it's not enough, you might need more. But if it's too little, it doesn't make you interested or excited. And, and, and it's going to be hard, right? So it's like what's worth fighting for even when it gets hard? What are the amount of intersections that have to be present for it to be worth fighting for, even in the hard time? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for, thanks for sharing about this like portfolio of, of sources of meaning perspective. I think that's helpful. Um, yeah. Like I think, uh, I think I also don't hear people talk about as much when they're in these weird exploratory phases is like exploration is fun, but it's also really exhausting. Sometimes it is really nice for, for someone to put a path in front of you and be like, look, walk mm. this path that works. And be like, okay, and you can walk it <laughs> and spend the energy doing the walking rather than the energy plotting the course. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that that kind of experimentation is just like necessary to figure out the path that is going to work. Um, it's like short-term clumsiness, but long-term alignment and fulfillment. Yeah. Oh. Oh, why is life going to be so complicated? Why do we need so much just to be happy and fulfilled? Jesus, humans. So what's in your in your current portfolio approaches, Norman? What are the things that you've been trying to hmm. bucket together? Let me see. I think a source of meaning that I unexpectedly have been pursuing is physical fit. I think of all the vectors for progression, that is one that I've 
historically underinvested in. Like a game that I always thought I would never be good at. After hiring a trainer, the feedback loops have increased. And so knowing that I can count on my body to get stronger and be healthier is a wonderful diversion sometimes from a feeling of frustration or lack of success in other areas in my life. Mm -hmm. So it's just kind of like a sacred place where meaning is so visual and so felt. It literally just brings more liveness, which is great. So that's been an unexpected source of meaning for me. A source of meaning that I'm still playing with in terms of like career and, and the intersection of that and like me being a creator is that like, how do I fuse the Lil Nas energy with like the Brene Brown energy? That ongoing inquiry is like very in interesting and fun for me. So that's like a, a, a big one. I think a big one that is probably on a lot of people's minds is like, how do we use AI um, to inform creative work? I have been obsessed with watching videos of people creating things using all kinds of AI tools. Um, I use ChatGPT a lot nowadays. Like here's a secret recipe, I suppose, that I play with, like that's helping me with that inquiry. It's like, I literally tell it, Hey, ChatGPT, currently in the room are Lil Nas X, Brene Brown, Bretman Rock, and Esa Perel. They are having a conversation about the intersection of intimacy and autonomy needs in relationships. Show me how this, this conversation plays out. <laughs> it's so cool. It is insanely ridiculous. And I like, I like laugh so hard. Like I cry when I read the script, but like, People don't know that, like, I think this is how ChatGPT should be used. Not like, write me an essay about economics. No. Do the insanely, like, creative stuff that's, like, weird so that you get surprising things. Right? Like, what if SpongeBob did a TED Talk about intimacy? I want, I want to know that. That's interesting. <laughs> right? Like, the reason why, like, the most viral, like, stuff on, like, AI is, like, the Harry Potter X Balenciaga stuff. It's, it's like, so good. It's so, so good. random and like left two complete, you know, like different universes, but like it ties everything we've been talking about together. Like that is a monopoly that no one else can have. Mm. You made that. Now you're the face of AI videos, you know, like for like two months. Right. And then someone else will create these other crazy collisions, but like the crazy collisions are what's exciting and fun. And so I'm trying to figure out like AI's support, what it could look like on a very like minute granular level so that I literally feel like I have permission to do some of that. It's like, oh, well, Bretman said it that way, even though he didn't really say it, but like he said it that way. I could probably try saying that in a video. Okay, that, that's uh. fun. So it's like generating permission for myself in a really like indirect way. Whoa. Fascinating. Yeah, interesting that be a permission because it's cool that like you're able to put all of these people that I'm imagining you look up to or really respect and admire in a certain way into a room. It's, it's making me think of one thing that Jamie and I have talked about in a previous podcast episode when we talked about support systems, I think, where literally mm -hmm. one technique is gather all of your trusted confidants and best friends and put them in a room and like have them discuss and debate on your behalf. And now with AI, you can 
do that with, in theory, like any anyone that I guess you have, we have large amounts of data on, which I guess are well-known people. Is there an example of a thing that's GBT has said to you that's blowing your mind that sticks out? Okay, one thing that was really funny is I had unexpected celebrities pitching relating between lines back to me. So I, I fed it copy from my website and then I had specific people that were not the usual suspects, right? I tried first having like Esther Perel and Brene Brown like pitching relating between lines to me and it was like boring. It was like it said the exact same stuff that I would say because like obviously I'm already like borrowing that, that voice. But then I had Bretman Rock and Lil Nas X pitch relating between lines and it's the funniest shit ever. They're like hey babe it's time to work on your relationships, hunty. Like, do you <laughs> suck at boundaries, girl? Then you better check this out. It's like, <laughs> it, it, it is a part of me. Like, a part of me does, like, talk like that. I just didn't think to do that. But, like, the, the second I'm reading this, I'm just, like, laughing hysterically because I never would say it like that publicly. But, like, Bretman would. Lil Nas would. If Lil Nas somehow were connected to me and like took RBTL and loved it, he would say the exact same thing <laughs> and people would love it. And so it was just like wild to to ask, you know, this question and then to get it back. And it's just so funny. And I was like, wow, I, I want 10% more of this. I don't know if I'm ready to do that, like 100%, but it's really inspiring. I love that. I love the permission angle. Uh, and yeah, I do think these tools are really helpful for when you like have like a sense of a direction you want to go in, but you just have no idea what that direction looks mm -hmm. like. Yeah. And I can just fill it out and you're like, oh, that's what it looks like. I want more of that. So yeah, I, I really appreciate it being used for this kind of thing. I'm curious, like if there's any part of this ambiguity navigation from your side, like from an emotional perspective, like that you've been struggling with, it might be helpful or interesting to talk about. Mm. Mm. I think the thing that's the hardest for me right now is actually just gaining clarity on what I want. Like there are pieces of a puzzle that I know that I want. I know that I want meaningful work. I know that I want to find a life partner. I know that I want a community of peers in whatever space that I end up in to, to just like be my community around me. But all three of those things are like, it's kind of hard to figure out how to actually orient my time around those things, especially mm -hmm. as I'm figuring out which of those things I actually want. So the only thing that's been working, the only kind of model I have for this at the moment is this idea of running experiments. So I was like, all right, for like a couple of months, I'm going to try running around and being an investor and see what that feels like. And I was like, okay, now I know that's not what I want. And then I spent four months in Hong Kong, like, let me try just being a language student. And after four months, I'm like, all right, that was fun, but like, I cannot live this way. I cannot exist for another eight months communicating predominantly at a first grade level. Like I just can't, my nervous system is not okay with this. So, and then the experiment I'm running now is like being kind of teetering on the, the edge of, of going down the founder path. But the experiment for that one is just way more brutal because it's not really one experiment because uh, the experiment of like building out a network, the experiment of choosing a specific idea and validating it, the experience of fundraising, the experience of building a team are all like completely different things. Um, and I'm afraid that I'm going to get to this point where it feels like at the point of no return, where I start having responsibilities to a lot of people 
and then being terrified about the idea of wanting wanting to eject and being bound by obligation to not do that. So that's making me a little bit scared of going down that route. In a different kind of way, I'm a little afraid of not going down that route. Like I'm, I always have this like resistance to the idea of avoiding something out of fear. Um, so th that's like the, the really fundamental thing is like figuring out what experiments to run and how far to run. And then there's an associated thing, which is just like, how do you like build a schedule around this weird, unconstrained phase of life? Because like, you know, when, when you have school, when you have work, there's a lot of external constraints or when you have, when you have like kids also just forces a lot of constraints on how your time is structured. But at the moment I am weirdly unbound by all of these things, which is certainly like a very nice and privileged place to be in many ways, but it's also quite disorienting. Um, so if you have any words of wisdom from your past experiences, being in strangely unconstrained space and thinking about how to orient yourself, like that's the thing that I really need help with at the moment. You have three open loops. You cannot close all three at the same time. I think if you sequence the exploration of those three and prioritize the sequence of these three instead of all three, I think will give you the constraints you need to explore the next ones. And I would probably prioritize it based on like immediacy and also actionability. I think the most actionable one is probably actually like community because mm. it is very quick to find a space that has the people that you vibe with because you can just locate the different houses that are in the Bay Area and start meeting them. And then you'll very quickly know like which ones you vibe with or whether or not you need to curate your own uh, space. And I think the, the partner one, my own take is that like it would be unfair for a partner to join your life right now. And so having those other two as anchors makes more sense before figuring out how to make the finding your partner like a thing to like do. Um, and so it kind of limits now by elimination that like it's career and community that you focus on first because those create the most clarity on your schedule and how you spend your time, which then allows you to navigate finding a partner even more clearly because then you know your schedule, you know the availability you have, you know, the lifestyle that you temporarily have, maybe, depending on how short-lived or long the experiments are. Um, so I would think of it like that. I would sequence it out instead of trying to answer all three, because that's impossible. Yeah, that is exactly the conclusion it came to. So it's really cool to see the same line of reasoning um, through your own eyes. The community piece is building and is helpful for sure. The career pathing mm -hmm. is, you know, that's the active experiments that are running and I've actually kind of put dating on pause um, for exactly the reasons you're saying where it is like, it's hard to ask someone. Don't be the guy who's like, I'm figuring things out. I don't know what I want. Like, oh my <laughs> God, the world does not need another. I'm still figuring things out. I can't commit to anything kind of person. Right, right. <laughs> Jeez. Uh, yeah, I think part of the, part of the frustration of the place that I'm at right now is that there are easy paths to figure out the career thing. Like I could just choose, I'm gonna get a job. And I could do that like in the next two weeks if I wanted to. And then that could theoretically be the answer to that question to help, to let, like, give me the stability to close or to focus on relationship finding. And the reason I'm not doing that is I think it would, it would not me if I knew that took the easy path. So it's just frustrating knowing that I'm 
intentionally delaying focusing energy on a thing that I know is really important to me uh, because I feel like I need to have to spend my energy on another thing that's really important to me that needs to come first. It just really sucks to confront that reality. It sounds like you have some interesting like heuristics to it that I don't know how aware you are of them. And so that could be a really great conversation to have where it's like, what are the criteria that you have that you might not be aware of? Right. One criteria you, you have that I find really fascinating is it cannot be the easier path. And so there's, there's like interesting assumptions to explore there and, and like what that means. Another one is like, I do not want to have regret having not tried it. Mm. And so these are interesting criteria that are like coming through that I don't know were like top of mind for you in, in how you were thinking about what's next. But surfacing those is so important because they're the ones that are kind of like creating the gridlock in your decision making because it's like, oh, but then this. But then it's not voice and it's not written out, so you can't. And you can't. You don't have the rubric. It's like the rubric's a black box, and so you can't decide. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, one of the things that I'm going to start doing over the next couple of weeks is the practice of morning pages. Hmm. So just doing free writing in the morning, and then starting to try to notice the the content trends that emerge. I have a friend that has talked about this practice of you do this repeatedly. Uh, now, helpfully with. GPT, you can start to ask it to summarize trends it's seeing, and then to think about how to work with those with those trends as, as like some kind of parts work therapy. Hmm. So that's kind of the next direction that I'm going to be spending time and energy on in parallel with some of the the writing methods of explore, of exploring career path. So yeah, it was really helpful to hear you um, describe the the connection between these three loops and come to the same conclusion as me. I think that gives me peace of mind that I'm not crazy for for like delaying this thing that's very important to me. Even in the language of delaying, it's that comes with the baggage. What if you are intentionally sequencing or waiting or timing things? Right? That sounds way more intentional and matching of the energy rather than I'm pathetically putting this thing off like a sad person who has no agency is like no like but somehow all that's getting like collapsed into the word delaying yeah i mean i i think that there is some of the energy there and like i can see why it's not helpful but it is like honestly there uh, yeah like i think that i just do have frustration that i don't have mm. more capacity to mm. deal with all three at the same time the struggle of being human we'll never have enough time for all that we are interested in yearn for wish for well i think there might be grieving to be done the grief that you can't have it all yet right now i think that's important work too because they're important to you and part of a part of you needs to know that it's okay that all three are not present in your life yet to get to that acceptance requires grieving yeah i never thought about that before it's like you need to grieve almost like the loss of like your own expectations that might be built on some type of unstable foundation we have to grieve what could be what could have been what's not there otherwise we never fully integrate unmet wants and needs from those things that often point to much more i think tender parts of ourselves right like the grief of not having a partner is 
present for me as well as I'm figuring out what's next in mm. a lot of different areas of my life. And if I don't grieve, it turns into anger or it just manifests as anger and like a weird stagnation and resentment. Mm. But if I like grieve it, then I honor the part of me that wants to share love, wants to care for someone else. Like it allows me to change the the energy to be of like appreciate back into myself. Otherwise I get mad at the world and I don't want that. Wow. It's almost like, I think people talk a lot about that in, in terms of acceptance, like having to accept it, but it's like the connection I'm making is that before an acceptance and an integration, there's it's typically preceded by recognition of the loss of something, like a grieving process. Or not even necessarily loss, because he's he's not losing these things. It's just that you can't have it, at least right now. And that- But that, I want it. Yeah, that I, <laughs> but I want, that is where the grief comes in. Wow. Yeah. The, the the fact that you just can't have it, you need to cry that you can't have the candy. And it's healthier to cry that you can't have the candy than to get angry at candy or get angry at anyone who has candy, you know? Wow. Yeah. And, and you can't accept that you can't have the candy without first allowing the anger and grief of not having candy. Wow, this is insane. This is blowing my mind. For me, it was less like candy and more of just like Yu-Gi-Oh cards that I wanted as a kid or like a video game I really wanted as a kid. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I just never, it's occurring to me now, like the dominoes are clicking, we're falling in mind-blowing moment that, that that is a thing that you need to process in that moment of like i want this thing i can't have it it's literally the same as gonna break up like when you know someone breaks up with you and that you, therefore grieving right um also i mean also in like the most like common manifestation common of grieving is like when someone passes away it's like i did not want this person to leave me they have left me and stuck with that therefore grieving it's kind of nuts that they're the all deepest the layer yeah the deepest layer of grief is getting to the reality of helplessness and feeling it but not letting it define you as a reality right because like there's there's some aspect right now in jamie's life that is outside of his control the biggest one being like a partner right we can't control that one like it's like when it happens it happens but like there's grief that comes with like a sense of i can't do anything about this that also needs to be felt through otherwise it's that energy is not i think released this has been some very helpful emotional processing external perception of pretty fundamental struggles and noticing that the, the responses that are like how we are free are not verbal it's just like uh things i need to sit with and i'm really tired <laughs> and i think we've been recording for like an hour and a half so i yeah, think uh, i think we can call it here yeah so Kevin, how are you feeling on the on the way out? I'm still chewing on this. Like I'm just it's cool that I now have like this this tool set I have for processing grief is now just so much more broadly applicable to life now. Um mm. and that actually that brings me a lot of joy and a lot of hope. Um mm. and that now I can like recognize more things as grief and now have a toolkit to deal with that. So that's actually very energizing. I think I'm emotionally like at like a seven or an eight, physically like a five. Been a, it's been a day, but yeah, yeah. Norman, where, where are you at on the way out? I feel, what's the word? It's like, I feel glad that I'm 
able to be maybe even like one or two percent like helpful you know like on your journey of figuring things out it's so hard um and so it it feels meaningful i guess that i get to be part of this journey and sharing some of this um with the listeners as well overall i'm feeling content this was enjoyable dreading thinking about what i need to do about my thing that i need to write um but this was fun. Yeah, I'm even more tired now for sure. I'm at like a, like a three, maybe three and a half in terms mm. of physical energy left. Um, emotion is kind of a mixed bag. I'm, I'm like, I, yeah, I am feeling some of the grief, um, and just like sadness and recognizing that the path I'm on is going to be long. <laughs> mm. um, but also really grateful both for the community from the two of you and the other communities that I've found that helped me feel much less alone in going down a very winding journey so feel feel very human <laughs> it's emotionally like i don't know like a like a sex yeah norman thank you so much for joining us both sharing your own story and helping me uh make a little more sense of my yeah of course it's great having you feels like honestly it's been a long time coming in the sense of you know being the progenitor of the podcast and also we have just talked to you about the podcast for so long. We also talked to you about it as we were making it and coming up with a name. You helped us brainstorm the name too and and uh, give us a lot of ideas. So it feels like something has been set right in the world now that you've shown up in the pod. It is a privilege to be the um, uncle, I suppose, gay uncle of, <laughs> of vulnerability junkies. <laughs> you would not have it any other way. Cool. All right, thanks everyone for listening. Yes, wherever you are in the world, whatever time it may be, we hope you have a good rest of your day and night. And we'll catch you next time. See ya. Bye. If you enjoyed this conversation, please help us by leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app. We would really appreciate it because it helps us grow and lets others find the show. When we're not podcasting, Kevin also makes YouTube videos. And Jamie has a blog. You can find links to these in the episode description. The intro music you heard in this episode was made by Harry Dye. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in two weeks.